I don't intend to preach on the gospel, but every year we read from the 20th chapter of John's gospel, uh, the resurrection, and Mary Magdalene uh, being the first person to see the risen Jesus. The Eastern Orthodox Church refers to Mary Magdalene as the apostle to the apostles. And I'm always amazed at this because somehow there was lost in translation for about 2,000 years until we have had women in the full leadership of the Episcopal Church at any rate uh, and some of the other uh, liturgical churches. So it's interesting to read this always and to uh, have it there by design in the church's lectionary. Some of you may have wondered always, why do I say Mary Magdalene? And the answer to that is because. Actually, when I was off to seminary, my home parish, St. Matthew's Church in San Mateo, uh, had the Archbishop of Canterbury come and preach, Michael Ramsey. And in the course of his sermon, he mentioned Mary Magdalene. So I always thought from now on, when I pronounce that, that is the way that I'm going to pronounce it. <laughs> Father Thomas Keating says that during the great 50 days of Easter, three great theological themes present themselves. God's light, God's life, and God's love. And these three themes course through the liturgical shape of how we as Episcopalians understand the relationship between worship and belief, and how it animates how we might think about an authentic faith in every age. There is a Latin maxim that's very ancient in the church's life, lex orendi, lex credendi. The law of prayer is the law of belief, or what we believe, we pray. And it is an affirmation that in the lived experience of the church of God, its worship came first. And its worship animates the nature of its belief, the theology that it develops, and the sacred writings that it believes definitive for its common faith in life. So what that means, of course, is that the church is prior to the scriptures. The church is prior to the scriptures. Every year on Easter I talk about the four great themes of the great 50 days that are really focused very intensely at the great vigil of Easter but appear on Easter day throughout the great 50 days and they're always important to speak about and to emphasize. They're kind of like the four predicates that course through the liturgical year of the church. And to a large degree they connect with Father Thomas Keating's three themes. This, I take these from a book that you would repay reading uh, called The Mystery of Christ, The Liturgy as Spiritual Experience. Father Thomas Keating is a Trappist monk and he lives in Snowmass, Colorado and he has been part of an ecumenical undertaking, an interfaith undertaking among a variety of groups for many years now that has uh, borne much fruit by emphasizing the similarities and not the differences. So the first thing that we encounter during the great 50 days of Easter is the presence of the light of Christ. 
symbolized by the Paschal candle in the sanctuary for the great 50 days, and it's removed after Pentecost, which is the the close of, of the great 50 days of Easter. This is a symbol of the illuminative processes of God at work in two ways. One is an external light that shows us the way corporately, and the other and shows us the way personally, where to go. But Christian people came to believe and understand that this symbol had something to do with the interior light, the illuminative processes of God at work in each of us. So this light shines on those aspects of our character that are godly and good and that we need to continue to affirm and reinforce. And this light also shines on those aspects of our character that need work and shows us the ways and the means by which we can see with greater clarity and fullness God's will and purpose for us as we live. You know, this is not just specifically religious material. This has to do with learning how to be the best human being that you can be. Because in Jesus Christ, we believe we have seen a human being who has achieved the highest of his human potentiality. And by extension, as we understand that as a template that we lay over our own spiritual life and development we see that we can move in that direction as well. Remember, perfection is something that some people think they need to achieve, and a lot of people have become sick or crazy trying to achieve perfection. If you read the New Testament in Greek, you will see that when the word perfection is used, the Greek word, teleios, means mature. So I don't know about you, but mature is easier for me than perfect. Right? Because we can look back on our lives when we've lived lives of intention and we can see the maturing processes of God uh, within ourselves, a kind of serenity and confidence about what it is that we can do uh, with some degree of clarity. And you know, when you do that, that's what the, what the virtue of humility means. Humility doesn't mean groveling. Humility means knowing yourself. The light of Christ Throughout the great 50 days, we read in the Bible, uh, in the New Testament, the stories of the history of salvation. Also in the Hebrew Bible, we read about God's abiding presence in the creation and how God has always been faithful and how God is not a cutter and a runner. And by virtue of that, we can begin to put two and two together uh, in two ways. One is as a community of faith that sees that this literature informs us in some way and affirms that we have been moving in a direction in spite of all the cul-de-sacs and the difficulties. We have in some way been making progress over time, but we've learned something else because these stories are about human beings. And they're about human beings who have had a lived experience. And when they read about other human beings like them, they say, you know what? My own personal history is part of the history of salvation. 
and by extension who I am and what I do must be necessary and essential to accomplish God's purposes. The Bible and in the worship of the church is replete with examples about how each one of us counts in big and small ways for God's plan for the cosmos. So when we think about the history of salvation, we affirm that we're part of it and a necessary part of it. The third part of the shape of the Easter, vigil, the Easter liturgy, the Easter Vigil too, is baptism. And baptism is the energy of God's Spirit moving through the church. All baptized people receive the Spirit of God, which is God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. And by virtue of that also we understand that this baptism constitutes for us a template through the covenant that we say, and we'll repeat in a few business as Mother McNeil leads you in the renewal of our baptismal vows. And we will affirm what the nature of this template is. I always say this on Ash Wednesday every year. I go into the church sometime during the day and I open the prayer book and I read the baptismal covenant. And I ask myself a question, how have I been doing over the past year? How's it been going? And the fourth and final part, of course, is the Holy Eucharist, which is being fed with the spiritual food and drink so that we may dwell in him and he in us. So I always say it is a wonderful thing to hear people say that after they receive Holy Communion, they feel better. You know, when you feel better, you're able to be a better, more able in, uh, to do God's work in the world. You're more able to rise to the occasion to pursue the excellence that you are called to in every part of your life. You know, the, the, the word virtue in Greek means, uh, is arete, and it means excellence. The pursuit of excellence and how we might understand what that means. And think about excellence and maturity, not excellence and perfection. Maybe a better, a better idea. So the question that we might want to ask is whether or not uh, being a faithful Christian or understanding the power of new life transformation growth that we believe is uh, connected to our belief in the resurrection of the Savior and by extension uh, to uh, the promise of resurrection for all of us. I just saw about two weeks ago my old bishop. He came into the office here and wanted to know if it was okay to park in the parking lot. <laughs> and I said, of course it's okay. And uh, we talked about some things and I said, I quote you, uh, often, or at least from time to time, he says, like what? <laughs> so I said, well, one that uh, slips off the tongue very easily is, I believe in the resurrection because I have seen the resurrection and I have experienced in my own life. So if you're thinking about the resurrection and the big heroic way, think about all the times that you have triumphed over all the forces of negativity and death 
in your life and you have been able now to turn in a different direction and understand your future in a newer and deeper way. That's what the power of the resurrection is in the world. And people who participate in the body of Christ might find ways and means to do that. About every two or three years, I read to people on Easter this section, my favorite section from the book Cryptonomicon. Some of you may remember Cryptonomicon. It's usually not my cup of tea, but there is a quotation here, and bear with me, that I think is great. So the background is this. One of the main characters, a guy named Randy, had a girlfriend named Charlene. And when Randy moved away from Seattle for a long time, uh, he uh, began a relationship with a woman named Amy Shafto. And he, Randy, and Amy came to Seattle to visit people. And Charlene, prior to that, had told everybody what a jerk Randy had been for doing this terrible thing, and although there had been no undertakings of any sort of permanent relationship in the course of this. So Randy is gone to a party uh, where he sees some of his old friends with Amy. And here's what it says. The friendliest and most sincere welcome he'd gotten was from Scott, a chemistry professor, and Laura, a pediatrician who, after knowing Randy and Charlene for many years, had one day divulged to Randy in strict confidence that unbeknownst to the academic community at large, they had been spiriting their three children off to church every Sunday morning and even had them all baptized. Randy had gone into their house once to help Scott wrestle a freshly reconditioned clawfoot bathtub up the stairs and had actually seen the word God written on actual pieces of paper stuck to the walls of their house, like on the refrigerator door and the walls of children's bedrooms where juvenile art tends to be reposited, little time-wasting projects that had been done during Sunday school, pages torn from coloring books showing a somewhat more multicultural Jesus than the one Randy had grown up with, curly hair, etc., talking to little biblical kids or assisting disoriented Holy Land livestock. The sight of this stuff around the house co-mingled with normal, that is, secular, kid art junk from elementary school, Batman posters, etc., made Randy feel grossly embarrassed. It was like going to the house of some supposedly sophisticated people and finding a neon-on-black velvet Elvis painting hanging above their state-of-the-art Italian designer furniture. <coughs> Definitely a social class thing. And if it wasn't, and it wasn't like Scott and Laura were deadly earnest types, and neither were they glassy-eyed and foaming at the mouth. They had, after all, managed to pass themselves off as members in good standing of a decent academic society for a number of years. They were a bit quieter than many others. They took up less space in the room. But then that was normal for people trying to raise three kids, and so they passed. 
Randy and Amy had spent a full hour talking to Scott and Laura last night. They were the only people who made any effort to make Amy feel welcome. Randy hadn't the faintest idea what these people thought of him and what he had done, but what he could sense right away was that essentially that was not the issue because even if they had thought he had done something evil, they at least had a framework, a sort of procedure manual for dealing with transgressions. To translate it, into Unix system administration terms, Randy's fundamental metaphor for just about everything, the postmodern politically correct atheists were like people who had suddenly found themselves in charge of a big and unfathomably complex computer system, society, with no documentation or instructions of any kind, and so whose only way to keep the thing running was to invent and enforce certain rules with a kind of neo-puritanical rigor because they were at a loss to deal with any deviations from what they saw as the norm. Whereas people who were wired into a church were like Unix system administrators who, while they might not understand everything, at least had some documentation some FAQs and how-tos and read-me files, providing some guidance on what to do when things got out of whack. They were, in other words, capable of adaptability. Well, Episcopalians believe that part of those read-me files and all of that stuff, FAQs, is the Bible, our tradition with a capital T, and human reason and experience. And so on these great days when we celebrate the mystery of Christ in the most profound and fundamental way, it's good to understand that that is there, but we don't have all the answers. A faithful Christian attempting to appropriate the resurrection faith needs, I believe, to embody seven things that are important as you live your life. The willingness to question joined to deep affirmation the intuitive understanding of the Christian life that is both inward and outward, the unique appreciation of the uniqueness of the individual together with the value of what is corporate and traditional, the ability to speak with the old authority and the new culture, the eagerness to be spiritually honest and not willing to disguise the element of conflict in our relationship with God the openness of a discerning heart, one that knows what matters and what does not. You know, what we argue about a lot in the church and in the wider society is what is essential and what is non-essential. In the early Christian church, it was called in Greek adiaphora, things indifferent. So how much time do you spend during the day on things indifferent that have loomed so large you believe them to be essential? And Christians have been struggling and struggling and struggling. And some of the major forward movement that has been made is that we have made progress on my view of finer and better distinctions about what is essential and what is non-essential. And that is extremely important. And finally, the remarkable capacity to hold together things often believed to be separate 
or opposed to one another? Have you ever been in a situation where you've had to sit in the middle of yes and no at the same time? And what sense have you tried to make out of that? And how has it improved uh, your own spiritual, emotional, and mental maturity? These things aren't just about religion. The resurrection is a mystery that has a lot to do with how we continuously renew ourselves as a people, as a community of faith, but also as individuals and in the intentional communities that we're part of. And Easter is all about that. So give thanks for all of these things, for the great 50 days of Easter. Give thanks for God's light, God's love, and God's life. Amen.